Our reading this morning is from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 1, reading at verse 1 through to verse 17. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gifts as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For eloquent wisdom, let lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, and we pray now you prepare our hearts to hear your voice and to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you are new to Chalmers or new to church generally, you've come on a good morning because we're starting a big new series of talks. All this term, we're going to be in this book of 1 Corinthians And um, we'll get as far as chapter 7 by the summer and pick up the rest uh, next year. And I'm hugely excited about this series. I love 1 Corinthians. I think it's an amazing book. Uh, And it's a hugely relevant book. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, hang on, isn't the whole Bible relevant? Well, yes, it is. The, The words of the eternal God don't go out of date. We'll see that in the evenings with Genesis, actually. But sometimes when you're reading the Bible, it feels like, It's set in a slightly different culture, a different time and place. 
It's quite a bridge. There are profound things for today to say, but there's quite a bridge to get there. You have to work quite hard. But in 1 Corinthians, well, it's written to a church in the same period of history as us, a book set after Jesus died and rose and went back to the Father, a book set in the last days, if you were here for our series in Acts. This is the time between Jesus' first and second coming. It's set in the same time that we're living in today. And it's written to a church in a city a lot like the one we're living in, in Edinburgh. Lots of similar issues. Actually, the more our culture in Scotland moves away from its kind of biblical moorings, well, the more we'll start to face exactly the same issues that these believers in pagan Corinth faced. How do you operate as a church in a city that believes in almost anything except Jesus? A pluralistic world, a relativistic world where anything goes except saying something is wrong. So Corinth, a bit of background, it was a, it was a Roman city, but, but converging trading routes uh, and a, a key port nearby, which just meant it was a kind of melting pot, a melting pot of Romans, Jews, Greeks, Syrians. It was cosmopolitan. It was rich, well, at least for the privileged few. It was sophisticated, very, very status-conscious. Young cities often they are. It was sex-mad, intellectually quite engaged. It was kind of up and coming. And we shouldn't be surprised that to this church, living at a time like we do, the last days, in a place like we do, a world city, cosmopolitan, well, they faced some of the same hot potatoes that we do. So there's the prevalence of celebrity Christian speakers the kind of personality-driven Christian tribalism that you see today and you see in chapters 1 to 4. There's the challenge of how to be sexually pure in a city where, well, every kind of sex is on offer on every corner. That's chapters 5 and 6. Does what I do with my body really matter to God? There's confusion about singleness and marriage and dissatisfaction there, discontent. There's difficulty about how much you get involved with your culture, kind of how much you connect with the practices going on in the city of Corinth, chapters 8 to 10. And then when it comes to church gatherings, chapters 12 to 14, well, what about the role of men and women? What about communion, the Lord's Supper? What about spiritual gifts in church? All sorts of hot topics in Corinth, and most of them are hot topics today. And the reality is that in almost all of those areas I've mentioned, this church was a mess. If you want to know how to live as church in a cosmopolitan city, well, not like this, basically. Not like this. There are two things that have triggered Paul's, Paul's kind of writing a letter to them. Um, the first is that they sent a letter to him, we don't actually know if they were asking questions or just kind of telling him what they thought on some of those issues. But either way, that letter was enough to get Paul worried. He got out his pen. But on top of that, he's actually heard some verbal reports of what's going on, and those are far worse. The church is in a chaotic mess 
just have a look, uh, if you've still got your Bible open at page 952, just have a look at verse 11 of our passage, chapter 1, verse 11. It's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. Now, Paul had originally been in Corinth for about 18 months teaching them. He's fond of this church, but now in all sorts of ways, it's a mess. On issue after issue, they're not, they're not living in line with the, the message of Jesus. But here's the worst thing about the Corinthian church. And if you're starting to zone out or have already, just tune back in. Here's a reason why we might need to sit up and take notice at Chalmers to 1 Corinthians. The worst thing about the Corinthian church is they think they're doing great. Striking, isn't it? The church has been thoroughly compromised by the world's thinking and values. It's not shaped by gospel thinking, but they don't even realize it. They actually think they're a really mature church. They think they're spiritual. They're they're proud of how they're getting on. I guess they think they're one of the strongest churches in the region. They're the gifted ones, the impressive ones. They're probably planning a training scheme. But actually, their thinking owes so much more to the culture around them than to the Spirit of God. And so Paul, this term, is going to repeatedly point out what real spirituality looks like in contrast to the kind of worldly, human-centered thinking they've absorbed from Corinth around them, that they've dressed up in Christian trappings. Now, we're going to see a lot more of that as we go on. I just want to highlight two aspects of that before we dive into our passage. This background will help us understand why Paul starts the way he does. Two attitudes they've picked up from their city. You'll see them on the handout if you've got the outline on the um, back of the service sheet. A and B. A, life's all about me. And B, it's all about now. It's all about me and it's all about now. See, Corinth as a city was self-promoting, self-serving, self-centered. It's all about me. How good do I look? How much can I get? How easy can I have it? How can I show that I'm better than others? All about me. And it turns out Christians living in that kind of culture can make church like that. Church becomes all about me. What do I get out of it? What can I do and be seen to do? It's all about me. That's the first thread of worldly thinking, and it's so deeply ingrained they don't even realize it's there. Closely related to that is the second one, B. It's all about now. That is, this life is probably all there is, and so now's your chance to enjoy it. To quote chapter 15, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Now, around them in this kind of melting pot of a city, there was, no, there was no one particular view of what happens when you die. I mean, just like if I surveyed the students who walk past my front door on the way to King's Buildings every morning, you wouldn't get one view of, of the afterlife or the lack of it, but you would repeatedly hear that the chance of there being some kind of physical resurrection well, just sounds absurd. When you die, you rot. Or maybe your soul carries on, but your body's in the ground. Or maybe we just don't know So why bother thinking about that? Just get on with life here and now. Just enjoy what you can. Have a good time. Even inside this church, there were some people denying the resurrection of the dead. What Christians believe and what Easter proves 
is that when we die, um, uh, we go to be with Jesus, but then he will raise our bodies in the future. All people will be raised. But some people were saying, well, that just doesn't make any sense. It's just not rational. And here's the thing. Although only some people in the church were denying it explicitly, it looks like almost everyone in the church was living like eternity didn't matter. Living day to day like it doesn't make any difference what happens in the end. Living for now, shaping priorities, behavior choices, my use of my Christian freedom entirely around what suits me now. They're self-centered. They're short-sighted. That's Corinth. And I wonder if that's just starting to feel uncomfortably familiar to 21st century British life. I wonder if that still creeps into churches. They may have dressed it up in Christian clothing, but they're just as me-focused and now-focused as the city around them. And against that kind of messy background, and the reports are really bad, like Paul's heard of one situation that would even shock the pagans in Corinth what's going on in the church. The situation's really bad. Well, how would you expect Paul to start his letter? It's a complete mess of a church. What do you think he'll open with? Surely a huge telling off. Surely a kind of socket to them. (laughs) Wake them up. Get them to their senses. And certainly when we get to verse 10 and point 2, we will see that. But actually, the letter opens with amazing positivity. It opens with thanksgiving to God. Reminders about what a privileged and secure place the Corinthians actually have with God. Let me just read it again. And, and as I do, if, if you're a Christian here who, who know, knows you're a mess or struggles with assurance, if you're someone who thinks I'm never making the grade in this Christian life, I've got a checkered past, and to be honest, my present is much better. Or just hear what God thinks of a church and a Christian, however messy they are. Verse 2, to the church of God that's in Corinth, to, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Jesus Christ. Or verse 7, you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's just remarkable. Paul's really thankful for them really confident about them. Amazing, really, despite the mess. And and why? Well, because Paul gives credit where it's actually due. He puts confidence where it actually belongs, and that is in God, God our Savior. If you're someone here looking into Christian things, don't look too hard at us. We're a complete mess. But look at the God who saves us in Jesus Christ. He is faithful. And so this is our first major point this morning. Give credit and place confidence where it's due. God. And as soon as you start to reflect on the 
that point. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it, that that's cutting across the it's all about me culture. Whether you're quietly proud that you're standing tall as a Christian, you're doing your bit, you're pulling your weight, you're serving, or whether you're silently terrified that you might not last the month, let alone a lifetime in the Christian race. Well, either way, God is the one who got you into church. God is the one who will keep you. He sustains you to the end. And, and what a refreshing alternative to it's all about me. So it cuts across that attitude. And then just look at verse 7. It, it cuts across the it's all about now attitude as well. Just look at God's real agenda, verse 7. So you're not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful. Paul puts his confidence in God for eternity for these Christians. That's been striking me, to be honest. I don't know what you do when you meet another Christian who, who might join the church. Maybe they're thinking of membership, or maybe they'll join the Redeemer launch team. We'd love a few more people to join. What do we thank God for? I know in my case, all too easily, my eyes kind of light up with all the rotors they could serve on, all the ministry output they could help with. It's kind of ironic, actually. It's all about them now. Whereas for Paul, what he thanks God for is what God is doing in them for eternity by grace. It's refreshing because if for whatever reason, maybe illness family circumstances, grief, exhaustion, a broken spirit, other commitments, if someone actually can't do much now, well, there's much to give thanks for. God is at work in their life for eternity if they're trusting Jesus. We'll see much more of that eternal perspective as we go through Corinthians. I set the, the uh, ministry associates a, a challenge this week. I got them to read 1 Corinthians. It takes about an hour if you want to do it this week. Got them to read it and spot if there are any recurring themes all the way through the book. And when we chatted on Friday, every single presenting issue on the ground in Corinth, Paul mentions eternity as the answer. Much more of that to come. But back now to giving God the credit just a quick word, actually, on, to our elders, to our small group leaders, to ministry leaders here. We need to have the perspective of verses 7 and 8 in the people under our care. We've got to think about eternal well-being, not just here and now. And we've got to give God the credit. Let me just run through these verses and see... Reminder after reminder that God is the one doing all the significant activity. And it's even in verse 1. So how did Paul become an apostle? You'll know if you were here last term. Uh, he was a religious extremist. He was anti-Jesus. But God called him. Jesus Christ stopped him on the road, turned him around and made him a Christian preacher. Irresistibly, he was called by God's grace. That's Paul, verse 1. How did the Corinthians get involved? Well, verse 2, and actually it's in verse 9 as well, it kind of brackets the section, God called them. As equally irresistible as his call of Paul, 
God, God called them. That's why they call on the name of Jesus in verse 2. God calls us into the response. It's fundamentally not like the kind of calls that uh, Jesse and I issue on a Sunday morning. We, we, it's always hard getting here to church in time for the prayer meeting, and we will call out, you know, kind of, Grace, get your, get your shoes on. Josh, stop eating the radiator. Does it make much difference? <laughs> Varies. On a good day, yes. Most days, no. God's call's not like that at all. It comes with uh, unstoppable authority. It's effectual. It, it makes people call on the name of the Lord Jesus. He gets the credit. I met a friend this week who's just been reading John's Gospel with someone else. A guy came to him, actually, and said, help me be a better dad. And my friend's answer was, well, we should look at Jesus, because that's the thing that most helps me. And so they sat down. They agreed, we'll read John chapter 1, and then we'll meet up and chat about it. And um, the first meeting they had, he said, uh, the guy came in and said, that was a complete waste of time. I didn't understand a word. And my friend said, well, we actually need God's help. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand. And they prayed, kept reading. A week later, he came back and said, I want to become a Christian. It's just amazing. God calls people unstoppably. And what does he call them to? Well, verse 2 calls them to be saints. And you might think, well, that doesn't sound like Corinth at all. I thought they're a mess. They're not holy. They're not kind of set aside for God. But just look at the tense of verse 2. They, they have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, past tense. They're called to be saints. That is, they're already purified in God's sight. Sanctification, it's not just something we, we live out. It's something we already have something God's given us. As chapter 6 will say, you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified, that is declared right in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're already holy in God's sight. God gets the credit. It's not something we're increasingly building up ourselves. So the Christian life begins with grace. Verse 4, we've seen that, haven't we? I give thanks to my God always because of the grace of God given you in Christ Jesus. Grace on day one. But of course, it's grace today as well. Grace every day until the last. Verse three, grace and peace from God our Father today. It's grace that gets me up here standing this morning, just as much as it was grace that got me trusting Jesus the first day. And we think, well, yes, but what about talents and abilities? What about kind of what we bring to the party? After all, the, the Corinthians are so gifted. Well, verse five Remember, gifts are actually gifts from God, verse 5. In every way you were enriched in Jesus, in all speech and all knowledge. Verse 7, you're not lacking any gift from him. God gets the credits. And why that kind of thanksgiving really matters, the kind of pastoral impact of this, if you're listening, is that if God gets the credit for getting me this far, well, then I can have confidence that God's faithful to get me all the way. Despite all the mess, all the division, verse 8, God will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful 
by whom you were called. If you are someone who lacks assurance here this morning, what a wonderful reassurance that is. Real believers can tie themselves in knots of despair. But actually, my eternal security does not rely on my faithfulness. It's on God's faithfulness. It's also a wonderful rebuke to the proud. I think to many of these proud Corinthians, you may think of yourselves as exceptional. The church that other churches should learn from. But actually, you joined God's kingdom just the way anyone else did, and you'll make it to the end for the same reason anyone else will. That's where he tops and tails this little chunk with their calling. And just look at, in verse 2, how he kind of rams home. This is the same as everyone else, halfway through. You're called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. All Christians share the same calling. We all came in the same door, the same way. Against which backdrop, it really is shocking what's going on on the ground. So verse 2, we're turning now to the, the divisions in this church. And when you think how God has united them in his call through Jesus in the cross, it's an absolutely extraordinary thing that they would be dividing. Let me read just verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and that there be no divisions among you, but you be united in the same mind and the same judgments. Now, let's get clear. There's a very specific kind of division going on here. This is not disagreements over doctrine. That's a whole different area. It's not disagreements over the wallpaper color or the budget strategy. This disunity in Corinth is caused by tribalism. It's a Christian preacher personality contest. Verse 11, it's been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you. What I mean is this, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Now, you can understand how, how those different kind of loyalties built up. So um, Paul had been around the church. He describes himself in chapter 4 as the father of them in the gospel. Um, but Paul wasn't that impressive a speaker. Actually, chapter 2 will say deliberately so. Apollos, well, he was known as powerful and eloquent on his feet. He would have topped the podcast charts, no problem. And so he's got quite a following at Corinth. He's preached there. But there are others who think, well, I want to go right to the top. Cephas, the Apostle Peter, the original preacher at Pentecost, the Acts guy. Others still trump that further. I don't know, are they being smug? I follow Christ. Now let me be clear as we apply this. It's not actually wrong to find a particular preacher helpful or encouraging. We all have different personalities, different styles of speech, different backgrounds. And actually, none of us preachers should be so proud that we don't value ministries of others. It's one of the reasons why podcasts can be a blessing. It's one of the reasons why a preaching team in a church family is a real blessing. No size fits all. And it's healthy for a church not to become kind of focused on a particular personality as God's mouthpiece or our guru. 
as that shows where the real authority lies. Actually, notice here, it's not that the preachers are falling out with each other or competing. In chapter 4, Paul will say, Apollos and me were on the same team. I planted, Apollos watered. That's not the issue. The issue is with the Corinthians dividing because they're trying to get one up on each other. These different preachers are actually their claim to fame, a way to make me look good. So, here you go. Have you heard the latest podcast from Piper? I actually heard it recorded live. I was at the conference. Piper? Too American for me. I'm more of a kind of Sinclair Ferguson guy myself. Depth. Really? I think you'll find Alistair Begg gives you the best of both those worlds. Yeah, but... Those kind of local church preachers are okay. I'm actually a Carson man because he knows his stuff. He's a proper theologian. Have you read his latest article in Themelius? Well, I'm more of a Tim Keller man myself. I think he's got his finger on the pulse. He kind of gets it. Generation Z, you know, reaching the city. I've actually been to Redeem in New York, you know. Yeah, he signed my copy of Center Church and actually my T-shirt. I've never washed it since. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that that kind of Preacher personality contest was going on in Corinth, the church, because it was going on in Corinth, the city. Impressive speakers, rhetoricians were kind of big business there. The cult of personality was as alive there as it is today in kind of 21st century celebrity soundbite Britain. It bleeds into the church. We shouldn't be that surprised. The kind of spiritual name dropping. By the way, do you know uh, Christopher Ash is coming to speak in our pulpit in the summer? He's in Edinburgh at a conference, but he's going to speak with us. Maybe he knows how many PhDs we have in the church family. It's not surprising Christians can drift into this kind of talk. It's the culture we breathe around us. But actually, it is deeply shocking in light of the gospel. One of the things Paul will keep doing as an issue kind of pops up on the radar to discuss, Paul will keep showing us that by the gospel's values, what's going on is deeply shocking. This kind of living for me, this self-promotion, this trying to look good here and now, well, it's nothing to do with real spirituality, real gospel-centered spirituality. Real spirituality is anchored by the resurrection, the good life is yet to come, and the cross in this book. The resurrection ends the book, and the cross starts it. The weak-looking, foolish-looking death of Jesus And so in our final point, that's where Paul turns to sort them out. Only the cross alone actually saves anyone. Verse 12, much more briefly. Each one of you says, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Kephas and I follow Christ. 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius and that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Paul's point is very simple. All those human leaders, those preacher personalities that you're so enamored with, Do they matter one jot 
when it comes to salvation. I mean, I know that actually being baptized by an apostle might seem like a claim to fame. Forget a signed t-shirt. Imagine that. The famous Paul had his hands on me. But it's utter nonsense. Because remember point one, give the credit where it's actually due. Christian leaders don't save people. Jesus does. Robin or me or anyone else doesn't build this church. We weren't crucified to save someone. And so Paul was sent as a preacher, a messenger about someone else, a herald. And notice the logic of verse 17. We'll unpack it much more next week. It's key to the first four chapters. But just look at verse 17 carefully. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Just notice what he's saying. The cross of Christ is plenty powerful enough to save people. It doesn't need to be topped up by a human performance. It doesn't need the addition of moving, powerful, eloquent, oratorical masterpieces. Again, we've got to apply this carefully. So it's not wrong for preachers to use persuasion. We saw the apostles doing that in Acts, convincing people from the scriptures of the truth of the gospel. But persuasion and manipulation are different. Likewise, it's right for preachers, in fact, we're obliged under God to be clear. And so it's right for us to work hard. I give a lot of my time trying to train people to be clear about the Bible. The Bible is clear, and so the last thing we want to do is make it seem cloudy. But all that said, even the sharpest, clearest, most listenable to to preaching It's never adding power to the gospel. It's just telling people about the gospel, pointing them in the right direction. And those who believe they are adding power with their style, their eloquence, well, they're in fact in danger of emptying the cross of power. We'll see more next week of why. But dressing up the cross in the trappings of man-made performance can actually distract from the real thing. My man-made eloquence rhetoric emotional roller coaster, my amazing illustrations, the, the cracking jokes, the great entertainment of a Sunday morning, well, it can draw attention onto me, away from the cross, get people relying on me, following me, and I cannot save anyone. The gracious power of God to call people to himself is through the cross, the deliberately foolish-looking cross, It's not supposed to look impressive. We'll see that next week. And so we dare not distract from that. I hope you can see the connection from where we started. Give credit. Place confidence where it's due. God, not humans. The cross, not the act of preaching. See, there's no other way to be saved. You can go to the most entertaining, moving, eloquent, learned lecture or sermon or conference or worship celebration, and there are plenty to choose from in Edinburgh. Keep shopping till you find a great one. But actually, it won't save anyone unless they're being pointed to the simple, weak-looking cross. And if that's the case, 
How could the Corinthians be making such a big deal of who their favorite preacher is, of which famous Christian celebrity they know? It's ironic, isn't it? They think that makes them mature as Christians, but actually they're, they're carving up the people that God is uniting for eternity. How can you be tribal if you believe in the one cross of Christ? It's time to close in prayer. Let me just say, uh, I don't know if you've, this thought has crossed your mind, but um, I think the Redeemer Church plant will help us with some of this. I don't know if you who are going have thought, who's the preaching team going to be? I don't know if those of us who are staying are thinking, oh, what's that going to do to the preaching team? The key question is, what will the preaching content be? Will both churches be hearing the cross of Christ proclaimed? Clearly, yes. Persuasively, yes. But actually, the eloquence and the personality that brings it is not the key thing. Let's give the credit and place our confidence where it should lie, whoever's wearing the microphone. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you so much that our eternal security does not rest on our performance, but on your faithfulness. And we praise you that salvation and our growth as a church does not rest on the eloquence of our speakers, but on the power of the cross. And we pray we would trust that, that we give you the thanks and the glory. Pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.